And uh, for those that do have children, or I guess for anybody, yes, we're beginning Advent. Happy first Sunday of Advent. Happy Thanksgiving week. Um, we have a resource that's available to everybody. This is not just for families, but also for individuals. Um, our Advent devotion, it kind of matches the theme, and so it's entitled With. And that's on our um, information table in the foyer there, which has a TV above it, so you can grab one of those. Um, or grab a couple, give one to a neighbor, just whatever you want. We'll have plenty to, to, to share throughout the season. So, um, Like I said, happy Thanksgiving week. I don't know what you all did um, this week. I know many of you uh, traveled and are traveling back and, and are kind of uh, have turkey hangover. Uh, some of you got a jump start on your Christmas shopping and decorating. I, I see you, Tim Van Oss, wherever you went. <laughs> He's my neighbor and he decorated his house and beat me to the punch. So there you go. All of us, though, I, I think in one way or another, took a moment to say thanks. Um, like my family, this Thursday, we gather around my in-laws' big dining room table in Anacortes, and um, Elliot actually led us in this, my son, my nine-year-old son. It was really cool. We paused, and uh, we just shared things. This isn't like new to anybody, but that we're grateful for from this past year. There was family. There were friendships. Um, there was gratitude for the life of a dear brother, uh, my mother-in-law's brother, who died at 96 just a couple weeks ago. Um, there was thanks in all my family for, because all of us had injuries this year, for skilled surgeons and physical therapists. Like that, thankful for you if you work in medical, medical field because I can move my arm now. So this is great. So there was much to be thankful for. And here's something I noticed as we did this, as we went around the table and we shared our gratitude with each other. Rarely, if anybody, said just thanks or thank it. <laughs> Indeed, more often than not, we said thank you. Thank you. We, it was, the you is important. Um, as one author says, it was not just a, it's not just a matter of a social grace that we teach our children to say thank you for something they're given, but it's instead a practice that we and millions of our neighbors uh, practice each year. We turn aside once a year from our preoccupations with life reduced to biology, economics, and politics, and we, we join together in a community of gratitude, into a community of gratitude. We say thank you for leading us this morning in worship. Thank you for being a part of this church that you're building with us. Thank you. And so as we begin Advent together, um, which is this time between, just happens to be between Thanksgiving and Christmas, a uh, time which we often sing, on, sing about and reflect on the withness of God, God with us, I'd like to suggest that it's the same with with. That it's never, with is, it's never merely with. That's a misnomer. I'll just say right now, and I actually came up with a theme this year for all Bethany, so my fault. Um, with is always accompanied, as you read the story of God, by a personal pronoun. God is with us. God is with them. God is with you. That's how we understand with. So verse 14 of John 1, the word became flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. It's not just among. He's among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the person in whom we see God most clearly. He's present among us, not just then, but now. In Jesus, God is dwelling among us. He's made up his, his home with us. As uh, Eugene Peterson says in the message, he moved into our neighborhood. I love that idea of Jesus living in your neighborhood next door to you. Jesus is here now. That's what we're looking at this Advent. And as John 1 says, God's glory in Jesus is in our midst. God's brightness, God's um, brilliance. Now here's something interesting as you think about glory, which I want to talk about this morning for this sermon, when you read about the glory of God, 
which is revealed to us by the Son of God, by Jesus. When you ponder God's presence, God's um, power in your life, what you begin to see is that this is a glory, a form of glory, unlike anything else the universe has yet seen. Uh, There are other forms of glory. Mountains are glorious. Um, Professional athletes are, are glorious. New babies are glorious. But this glory revealed in the person and work of Jesus is a glory not of a victorious leader, not of a chiseled warrior, not of an epic saga, like a, a Roman or a Greco-Roman saga. This is the glory, as we talk about during Advent, of a child. A child who's born in a backwater town to unwed parents, uh, amongst a disempowered and, and, and occupied people. Um, that's Jesus. And John 1 tells us that's the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? In, in, in fact, in Jesus, glory has to be reimagined and received and entered into in the way that Jesus reveals it. So here's how Jesus reveals it. Jesus is ignorable. Jesus is unimpressive. Jesus is dismissed throughout his life. Jesus is marginal. He suffers. He's rejected. He's eventually hanging on a cross, which we have still here in our sanctuary. And he dies and he's buried. <laughs> That's Jesus. And this, all of this is included, as we think about glory, in the content of what it means to see his glory, as John 1 tells us. We have seen his glory. That's what it means. And so today, as we begin to, to consider the implications of God with us throughout Advent, I want to invite us by first considering the conditions of God with us, okay? Conditions that I'd, I'd roughly categorize under three headings, three ways that God reveals his glory to us by, through Jesus, okay? So here they are. God's glory goes before us. This is verse 15 of John 1. God's glory is filled with grace. This is verse 16 of John 1. And then God's glory proceeds from the heart of the Father. This is verse 18 of John 1. Okay, so God's glory is before us. God's glory is full of grace. And God's glory proceeds from the heart of the Father. We'll do that. We'll come to the table and uh, we'll worship some more. Sound good? So first, uh, God's glory is before us, which we discover in this little parenthetical statement in, um, by John the Baptist in verse 15. So if you have the text in front of you, or, or you can just, I'll read it real quick. It says that John testified concerning himself, quote, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he's before me. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he's before me, which of course chronologically is a true statement. Um, if you know the story of John the Baptist, although they were cousins, contemporaries, it's John the Baptist, we're told in Luke 7, that prepared the way for Jesus. You know that place where he says, you know, I prepare, he prepares the way. He makes straight the, desert, the paths in the desert. That's John the Baptist. Not vice versa. Jesus, Jesus came after John the Baptist. But, according to Dale Bruner, who's a theologian from Whitworth College, even crazy and strange John the Baptist knew something theologically about the preexistence of Jesus. Although Jesus came after John the Baptist, John knew that Jesus came before, way, 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 long, long, long before him, which is an insight that echoes a theme, I think, that's running throughout the story of God. And here's that theme. As you look at the story of God, as God's people are traveling through time, so to speak, if you think of God's people as time travelers, what you find is that God is not only with them throughout their history, but God is ahead of them. God is before them. So, for example, in the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, you have uh, the people wandering throughout the desert for 40 years in the wilderness, right? You all know this story. Probably studied it. They're trying to find their way to the promised land. 
And, and the question might be, where's God in that time? You know, where's God? You know, maybe the answer. <laughs> we're told they're not on their own, that God's with them, and yet we're told in Exodus 13 that God is frequently right ahead of them. So Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day and night. And then, listen to this, neither the pillar of cloud nor, by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God was always by his presence in front of God's people, which is a, a very theologically significant testimony about where God positions himself in relationship to us. That's a testimony is confirmed throughout the Hebrew Bible as you read it. And then in the Gospels, in John 10, for example, this famous passage where Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Um, this is where he's talking about himself as the good shepherd. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber. But the man who enters the gate, or enters the, the pen by the gate, is the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, he goes on to say this. The watchman opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by their name, and he leads them out. Now listen to this. When he's brought them out, he goes ahead of them, not behind them. You think of sheep herders, and you've seen pictures of Western sheep herders, and they have their little shepherd's crook, I guess, and they're kind of herding sheep from behind. They may have a dog with them. This particular shepherd, which is Jesus, goes ahead of his sheep, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So I love that passage. I mean, I've dealt with that a lot. I've even preached on it here. But this week, as I've been thinking about this in the light of God's glory, God's being ahead of us, I've been struck by this phrase, he goes ahead of them. So significant. I almost, it's like I almost never noticed it before. Um, I'd never given it my, my attention, and I'd never really thought about what it means for God, the shepherd, to go ahead of me in my life. Jesus going ahead of us. I mean, it was just, it's just so reassuring when you think about it. I mean, think about this. You enter a setting, a situation, could be a very mundane setting like a coffee shop or your desk or a classroom at school. Or if you're a teacher, you know, 180 days a year you go there. That's a pretty mundane <laughs> Groundhog Day setting, right? You're just there every day. I'm just there trying to get through it, right? You guys are all feeling me right now, right? Or it could be a difficult situation like your kitchen sink. You've just had a hard conversation with one of your, your children. We have hard conversations sometimes. Or in bed at night next to your spouse you've been lying next to for the last 20 years. Life is exhausting. Intimacy is complex. You're just there. Or perhaps it's a space in a time that, that seems to hold a little more significance, more weight like a doctor's office where you're waiting for the results from your latest scan, or your mailbox as you're waiting a college acceptance letter, or this crossroads in your career, you're wondering, is this it? <laughs> is this it? Am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Or a crossroads in life, you, you've come to the last third, and you're like, is this it? <laughs> is this all there is? See, the truth revealed by John in the, God, in the gospel here is that God has, got, God has gone ahead of us into every one of those spaces in those times. He's anointed those times as holy. Christ has come before us. His glory is not only saturating every moment of your life, but it precedes every moment of your life. It goes ahead of every moment of your life. He prepares, as he says in John 14, a place for you, a place for rest, a place for healing, a place for wholeness, which is a tremendously freeing view of God. And a view that I have to confess is so different from the view that I often approach my day with. Or I should say maybe it reveals to me the way I typically reproach my days. So here's what typically happens. See if this resonates with your experience. I connect with God. I try to at least. 
prayer in the morning, a little Bible reading, maybe a devotional, or I, try, I listen to some music, you know? I got my, my headphones on, I'm just trying to listen to a little music, just get in that kind of Jesus space, right? And then this shift occurs, somewhere between prayer and having breakfast and getting my kids off to school and getting to work myself and beginning to answer emails and tackle some projects. Um, I mean, <laughs> I saw a parting of the ways, so to speak. Like, I don't feel as though I'm following Jesus anymore or that God's going ahead of me into the day or leading me into a situation or a meeting or an encounter. Instead, I'm just kind of taking it for granted that I'm blazing the trail here. I'm aware of God's presence some of the time, but really I'm more of a free agent most of the time. Like, kind of like Frank Sinatra, doing it my way. I'm just kind of, hey, God, I, I can do this. You gave me lots of gifts. You gave me a good head on my shoulders. I got this. So I'm out there, I'm making magic happen, or I'm feeling epically, but either way, it's functionally my project. It's my day, it's my success, and it's my failure. I'll call God, you know, I've got my little lifeline to God if I need him. And, and so, you know, because I'm smart, like I said, I'm resourceful. Maybe I'm thinking too much of myself, right? I'm stubborn, I'm willful, <laughs> you know. And as I think about it now, and maybe you're like this, I'm something of an unconscious deist when it comes to my faith. Like, like God's up there in the sky, just waiting to teleport me away from this earth. And I'm doing my darndest down here while he's sort of smiling down on me, not really engaged in the day-to-day of my life. Or maybe he's even a little bit bummed, a little bummed out with me, you know? Because, you know, he could probably do better. <laughs> I'm just mucking it up with the life he's given me, the world he's given us, like... He's probably like, yeah, but Zach, you know, he's super awesome. Yeah, and John the Baptist, the whole witness of scripture from Genesis to Revelation declares to us that the, this view of God is simply not true. Um, it's not true, and it's an awful way to live your life. It made me think of this George MacDonald poem uh, in Diary of an Old Soul this week where he says, this is this old Scottish poet who is a mentor to C.S. Lewis. He says, sometimes I wake and lo, I forgot and drifted upon an ebbing sea my soul was it that was a rest, resteth not, for I am with myself and not with thee. For I am with myself and not with thee. How many of you does that describe today? You're with yourself and not with thee. Why, why don't we believe in the day-to-day of our lives that Jesus goes ahead, prepares a place, like I said, a place of rest and communion and healing? Maybe the issue goes like this. Uh, I believe... Jesus leads, I believe he's ahead, I believe he's preparing space, but I'm making no conscious effort, <laughs> like I'm, no effort to follow him in the in-between times of my life, like, and that's really the key. This is not some intellectual exercise we're having right now, Advent, uh, seeing that God's ahead of us, God's with us. It has to be a living and immediate conversation with God through his word, every day, day to day, every moment, asking engaging with Jesus, saying, Jesus, do you really, have you really gone ahead of me? Like in this difficult season, have you gone into that? Ahead of me. Into this conversation I need to have. Have you gone ahead of me into that? Um, that moment, this changing time in my life, are you ahead of me? Because if you are, I wasn't expecting to be facing this when I you know, signed up. If you've gone ahead into this time, that space, what do you have? What do you have for me? How many of us are asking Jesus that question? Are you? Are you just taking for granted (laughs) that he's got good plans for you? Like, are you asking Jesus? 
And that's the transition, the crux question from the, 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 to the full life that Jesus offers us. Jesus says in John 10.10, I've come to give you life, life to the full. You want to experience that life, start asking, where are you headed, God? What are you doing, God? And how can I participate in your work where you are, God? So that's the gravity and the depth of John's little throwaway phrase there in verse 15. He who comes after me surpassed me because he's come before me. Isn't that amazing? So God's glory goes before us. Here's the second thing. God's glory is also filled with grace. So verse 16. Out of his fullness, we've received grace in place of grace already given. And I love the message here. The message says we live off his generous bounty, life one gift after another gift after another gift. Life is just a gift. And on the heels of Black Friday, right, um, in the advance of a Christmas season that is just rife with greed and excess and consumption, where it's just caught, we're already caught. Like, we're trying our best to prepare a space where there's sacredness and, and, and quiet, but it's caught us, if you're with me. Um, in a culture that's as divided and polarized and broken as it's ever been, it's, this is a really important word for us to meditate on. And here's what I mean by that. So after the Apostle John, who authored this letter that we're looking at right now, uh, after he died, about 20 or 30 years later, we don't know who wrote this letter, but there's this little letter, this very ancient Christian document called the Epistle to Diogenetus. And Diogenetus was a non-Christian. He wasn't a believer. And he had a friend who wrote him a letter and said, hey, I want to explain to you, trying to explain Christianity to him, kind of an apologetic. Um, can you imagine writing a letter to your friend's uh, relative? Let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. Yeah, you'd never do that. But this is what this guy did. And this is a little paraphrase of what this person said. Let me just tell you, Diogenes, a little bit about Christianity and why it's spreading like wildfire through the Roman world right now. He says, these Christians, they, they busy themselves on earth but their citizenship is in heaven. They marry and have children, but they don't kill their unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They're poor and make many rich. They're short on everything, but yet have want of nothing. And it goes on and on, but this is an amazing testimony, actually, if you look at this letter deeply. But the beauty and the distinctiveness of early Christianity And you might be asking, well, what does that have to do with Advent, God with us, especially verse 16 where it says that we live off the generous bounty of God, the life one gift after another gift after another gift. And that's a great question. (laughs) I'm glad you asked it. So notice there's these qualities that early Christians had that everyone marvels at, all four of which are demonstrations of not only God's grace toward them, but their capacity to be generous with others. Remember, we live off God's generous generosity toward us, and so life is a gift, one gift after another gift after another gift. Christmas is a season of giving, and there's a reason for that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, so notice, there's four qualities. First one is there was a complete absence of racism in the early church, in their own communities. There are foreign countries, it says, whereas native lands, their native lands as foreign countries. And what that's a hint of is that these early Christians, though they were Jewish, or African, or Greek, or Roman, they, were, they saw themselves as Christians first. They've been adopted. They've been they're part of the kingdom of God. So they're Greek and Roman and Jewish and African second. And, and so what Christianity did is it gave them a higher authority in their own understanding of themselves than their cultural tradition. It gave them a higher loyalty than their own racial background. And thus, 
it relativized their relationship to their own culture so they could critique it properly. They could critique their American culture if they were Americans. I don't know how many of us are able to do that today. Uh, they could critique their politics. They could probably critique a little bit of, I don't know, their music, <laughs> their, their science. I mean, they had a, a, a healthy critique. It also helped place other cultures of other different people in a different framework, a framework of grace, where they began to see that race and ethnicity and cultural diversity were aspects of God's grace toward us, a gift. So not ways of othering people or putting people in boxes or leveraging power over people as we do. They understood in their time that our differences were a gift to be celebrated and honored, aspects of God's generosity. That's what they understood. Secondly, they had a high view of life. The early church, it says, did not kill their unwanted. And back then, in the early days of Christianity, it was common, if you had a a female child, this will be scary to the four of you, uh, to throw the, the child in the river to get rid of it because you could not, they could not inherit land. Um, they were kind of property. Parents had the right to do that. Isn't that? That's horrific if you think about it. Um, slaves were also treated the same way. You could kill a slave if you no longer wanted your slave. You could do that legally. So Christians, they saw what, what this epistle of the Dianetius says, that every life, no matter how unwanted or, or expendable, had absolute worth and was infinitely precious. It was a pure gift. Life is a pure gift. I mean, God says, do not take life. And they took that very seriously. Um, thirdly, they had an unvu- unusual view of sex. Uh, and I don't worry, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about this too much. These guys are like, oh my gosh. Uh, it says they share their table with all, but they don't share their beds with all. The, the, so the pagan understanding of sex was that it was like an appetite. If you got hungry, you ate. If you, if you felt aroused, you had sex. It didn't matter who it was with. Very kind of liberal. Christians came along and, and they introduced a radically alternative sexual ethic. They said, sex, they said, is God's appointed way of saying to another human being, I belong to you exclusively and permanently. It's a way of, think of that. It's a way of giving yourself to another person. That's what sexual intimacy is about. And thus they would say, it must never be used to say anything else to anyone else. This is why we talk about consent. Uh, sex and sexual intimacy is a gift to be shared mutually, exclusively, and for life. That's what the early Christians said. Lastly, Diogenes said that they, they were radically generous of the resources. I'll be quick on this one. They share their table with everyone. Though poor, they make everyone rich. Um, there was this eye-popping generosity in their community. They were just radically generous with their resources. They, they were, it was their way of saying, like, we have plenty of everything. More than enough. We have more than enough because God's been so good to us. And so in the Roman world with its slavery, its infanticide, its corruption, its decadence, its immorality, Christianity was beautiful. It was attractive. People were clamoring to join that movement because it was radically generous. Remember what John says again. (laughs) We live off the generous bounty of God. Life, one gift after another gift after another gift. And they, they introduced that into their own Christianity. What do you think people out there are saying about us here today? If you were to ask someone on the street, hey, uh, tell, tell me a little bit about Christianity. Would they say radically generous? <laughs> would that be one of their first? No, they wouldn't. I mean, what do they think about our movements, contemporary Christianity, our leadership, 
um, as they listen to our leaders and the experiences on the streets and in the marketplace. See, Advent, as we encounter God here, we get to encounter God's gracious, his glory, his his generosity to us. A a child born to us 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, a gift. And God's calling us out of the way we're living into a new way of living, a way of living that's for others, not for ourselves. Um, A way of living that recognizes we live off the generosity of God and we have the capacity and the ability to be generous with others. A way of living that declares that our lives are one gift after another gift after another gift. So we can just give it all away. We can give it all away. I mean, you want a theological reason for why we give, uh, whether it's to the church or another nonprofit or whatever you give to, it's because there's more than enough. God has given you more than enough. God has been generous to you and you can thus be generous to others. So that's number two. We get to be generous because God's been generous toward us. Here's the last thing I want to say and then we're going to come to the table and this will be very quick. God's glory proceeds from the heart of the Father. So this verse 18, I love this verse. It says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God is in closest relationship with the Father. He's made him known. Now the Greek in this text is very awkward and literally it would say the one being to the bosom of the Father. <laughs> so you don't say that. That's just like, hmm? Uh, into the bosom is this idiom that means a return to original closeness. And so a better translation would be, no one has ever seen God, but God the only Son, whose being is back at the heart of the Father, He's the one. He's the one. And so here's what this means. Jesus came down and He explained God to us. But not just explained. Jesus is not some cosmic explainer. That's not what Jesus is about. Like I said in John 14, Jesus is preparing a place for us. This is what Jesus actually says there. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I don't know if you're in a place of trouble right now. Listen to Jesus speaking to you. You believe in God? Believe also in me, in Jesus. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not worth so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there, I will come back to take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. To the heart of the Father. See, Jesus proceeded from the heart of the Father in order to take us back to the heart of the Father. That's God's greatest desire. That's the core message of Christmas. A return to closeness. God's desire for us is to come home to him, home to the heart of the Father. Um, And that's why we get to begin the season, uh, this season, the way we do. Like, why we're coming to the Lord's table this morning. Because it's at this place of communion that these ordinary elements of, of crackers and juice through them that we're reminded that God's prepared space for us, all of us, no matter who we are, where our hearts are, where our faith is, how our marriage is going, anything going on in your life. God's heart for us is, 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 is to bring us home, to be generous toward us. Uh, and so we need to remember what he did on our behalf. So we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread like this bread, he broke it. He blessed it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he did the same thing with the cup. He said, he blessed it. He poured it out. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant so that none would be lost, that for the forgiveness of sins, whenever you drink this cup, eat this bread, you remember me. You, you return to the heart of the Father. You remember who you are, who I am. So we're reminded at this table that God's leading us in grace. His life is for us. Um, and we can freely come home to the heart of the Father. That's what we'll do today. So will we come home? Will you come home today? Let's take a moment to pray. And I'll invite the worship team back up.
Father, it is uh, back to your heart that we long to return. Um, uh, all of us, God, um, whether we feel like we're far from you or we feel like you're right here next to us, um, long to be closer to you. That's why we came this morning, God. Uh, maybe some of us are feeling subconsciously like that was why we came. We weren't sure what this morning would be about. But we recognize, God, God we confess together that um, it's your heart to have us close to you and it's our heart to be close to you. So God, through this time of communing together, would you draw us in? Would you remind us of what you've done for us? your great love for us in Jesus? And then would you reflect back to us uh, what you have for us in the coming season? That question, God, if you're ahead of us, what do you have for us? What are you doing? Would you talk to us this morning about that? Praise in Christ's name. Amen.